good morning. It's good to be back with you this week. I uh, appreciate Ron Davis from Chosen People Ministries filling in last week, and I know he did a, a great job, and he has a heart uh, for ministering to and sharing Jesus uh, with Jews who don't believe in Christ, and so it was great for him to be able to share what he shared last week. And we did have a great vacation, but it's always good to be back home. There's nothing like your own bed. So it's so much better to be in your own bed than someone else's. And so we're glad to be back, but it was a, was a great time. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Habakkuk from turmoil to triumph. Just a few reminders about Habakkuk. We don't know much about him. We do know that he was a prophet from God. We know that he probably wrote the book of Habakkuk in the early 600s B.C. We do know that he was alive during the reign of King Josiah, who became king at eight years old. We also know that he was alive when Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, became king. And Josiah was the righteous king of, of Judah, who tried to get Israel, uh, Judah back on the right path of worshiping God and following God and being faithful to God. But then Jehoiakim, his son, came along and undid everything that Josiah had done and led Israel and Judah down a path of evil and sin and wickedness. And so this book is actually a pronouncement or an oracle, meaning it's a message of divine authority that includes God's judgment on the wickedness and the evil of Judah. And throughout this book, Habakkuk is trying to wrap his mind around how can God sit idly by and do nothing about all the evil and all the turmoil that is happening in Judah? How can God be a just God and how can he allow this wickedness to happen and the wicked to prosper? And in Habakkuk 1, 2, and 3, he asks God, how long must this continue? God, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? And he is asking God to do something about the evil. And God assures Habakkuk that he is going to do something. In fact, he is going to do the unexpected. And God made it clear to Habakkuk that he was going to use the nation of Babylon, a ruthless pagan nation, to punish and judge his own people. This did not sit well with Habakkuk. He wanted God to do something, but that's really not what he had in mind. And in Habakkuk eyes, the wickedness, the evil, the Babylonians was worse than that of the nation of Judah. And so he continued to struggle with God. But as he struggled with God, as we saw last time, he began to reflect on the character of God. He reflected on God's holiness. He reflected on God's faithfulness. He reflected on God's sovereignty. He reflected on the eternal nature of God. And last time we talked about how when we struggle with God, we need to reflect on who God is and what he has done and then wait on him to answer. And this is exactly what Habakkuk did in, in Habakkuk 2.1. It says that he went to the watchtower and he waited on God. And he waited persistently and patiently and expectantly. And he expected to hear from God and he was not going to move from that watchtower until God answered him. Habakkuk put everything his, in his life on hold in order to hear from God. And like Habakkuk, we need to learn to exercise trust in waiting on God. And we need to remember that there is blessing in the waiting. Isaiah thirty eighteen says, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. 
Galatians 6, 19 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Those verses make it very clear that there is blessing from God when we wait on God. And we need to remember that God's answer is always worth the wait, as Habakkuk is about to find out. So as we look at Habakkuk 2, verses 2 through 20 this morning, we are going to see that Habakkuk's waiting on God paid off. As God did answer him. And we're going to see why Habakkuk could have confidence in the answer God gave him. And from this passage this morning, I'm going to share with you five reasons that we can have confidence in the answers that God gives us. And I'm going to take this passage a section at a time instead of reading it completely through. So let's look at Habakkuk 2. Let's begin in verses 2 and 3. He says, The Lord answered me. Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one easily may read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it since it will certainly come and not be late. The first thing I want to share with you this morning is we can have confidence in the answers God gives because his plans are solidified. Once again, the way God answered Habakkuk was probably not the way he expected because God answers, begins with instructions. He says, write down this vision on tablets in order to make it clear. And these tablets that he wanted Habakkuk to use were most likely made of baked clay and which once dried would preserve the writing that was on them. And then he said at the end of verse 2, he said, make it clear so that one may easily read it. God wanted to make sure there was going to be no mistake about what he was going to share with Habakkuk. I'm sure you know, I know people that have bad handwriting. It's hard to read. It looks like chicken scratch. And if you're not careful, when you try to read their writing, it can be misread. Or it can take on a completely different meaning. And the reason God gave such specific instruction to Habakkuk is he wanted Habakkuk to preserve the words that he was going to share with him. How many times have we said, I wish I'd have written that down? We thought we could remember it. For me, it's always going to the grocery store. I have a list, but sometimes I even forget what's on the list. And then when I get home, I say, why didn't I remember that? And oftentimes, it's because I thought I could remember it. I had in my mind what I wanted to get, but I didn't write it down. God wanted to make sure that the vision that he was going to share with Habakkuk was not forgotten, that there was no doubt about what he said. There's also a couple other ways that the end of verse 2 is translated. Some translations may say, the herald or messenger may run with it. In this case, God is telling Habakkuk as his messenger to proclaim the word that he shares with him. And looking at the original Hebrew, it is best translated so that he may run who reads it. And in this context, the word run refers to living one's life in obedience to God. It refers to a godly lifestyle. It refers to living the right way. And this is true throughout Scripture. In Psalm 119.32, the psalmist wrote, I run in the path of your commands, meaning I live my life according to your word. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul wrote, Run in such a way to get the good prize. He used the word run there as well, indicating 
that run in a biblical context means we are to live our lives in a way that honors God. So the command that God gave Habakkuk was not only to write it down, but he wanted Habakkuk to read it. He wanted others to be able to read it and to live by it. God wanted Habakkuk to preserve this vision by having a permanent record of it. He wanted Habakkuk to proclaim it. And he wanted him to live a life marked by obedience. And this is just not true of Habakkuk and the people that read this vision. This is true for all of God's people. We are just not to read God's word. We are to live God's word out in our lives. We are to follow what God has written. And we have a permanent record of what God has written, and that is the Bible. And this Bible is just as relevant today as when it was written. It is not antiquated. It is not outdated. And God tells Habakkuk that this vision is for an appointed time, and he is going to have to wait for it to happen. Now, Habakkuk might be thinking, God, here we go again. I've already waited once. Now you're telling me I'm going to have to wait again for this vision to come to pass. It's kind of like going to the doctor's office. You wait in the waiting room. You get excited when they call your name back. And then they put you in an exam room and you wait 30 or 40 minutes on the doctor to come in. You see, waiting is a normal part of our lives. Also, waiting is a normal part in our relationship with God. It is normal to wait on God when we walk with God. Abraham waited on God. He waited 25 years for, him, for God to give him the son that God promised him. Joseph waited on God. He was in prison for 13 years. Innocent man in prison waited on God to deliver him. Hannah waited on God to provide her a child. And he did in Samuel. David waited on God. He waited to become king while Saul was still king. And Jesus' birth was a time of waiting as well. In Galatians 4.4, 4, it says the birth of Jesus occurred at the appointed time. And just as the birth of Jesus occurred at the appointed time, so will his return occur at the appointed time. And God was making it clear to Habakkuk that his plans are solidified and that nothing can thwart the plans of God. Listen to Psalm 33:10 and 11. The psalmist writes, The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. And then Job 42, verse 2 says this. It says, With the one who can tend... I'm 42, I'm sorry. 42, verse 2 says, I know you can do nothing and no plan of yours can be thwarted. I know you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Nothing, no one can thwart the plans of God. And even though Habakkuk had to wait for the vision to be fulfilled at the appointed time, God assured Habakkuk that his vision would not be late. It would be right on time. He was telling Habakkuk to be patient. Babylon's punishment for their sin will come. It is going to happen. It is going to be on time. The issue, though, it wasn't going to be on Habakkuk's time. It was going to be on God's time. Second Peter 3, 8, 9, it says, To God a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. 
Everything that God has promised in his word either has come to pass, is coming to pass, or will come to pass. It's just a matter of God's time as to when all those things happen. And from the human perspective, the vision may appear to be late. But from God's perspective, it is certainly never in doubt. And its fulfillment is not going to be delayed. It's going to happen just as God planned. And we need to remember that God is always on time. God is never late. And this vision is not only the termination of Babylon's rule and domination, but this vision that God gives Habakkuk, it also points to a time when God will terminate all wickedness in the world, and he will judge and punish those responsible for it. And we may be thinking, how can God continue to allow what's happening in our nation, in our world? How can God sit by and not do anything about what's going on? You see, God promised to judge sin once and for all, and he will. But it's according to his timetable and not ours. And when things occur that we even don't understand, we need to trust God. Knowing that his timing is perfect. Knowing that his plans are set. Knowing that his plans are certain. Knowing that his plans are sure. And as Habakkuk 2, 2 and 3 says that God does not lie. Because if God lied, he could not be God. Numbers 23, 19 says God is not human, that he should not lie. So why can we have confidence in the answer God gives? Because his plans are solidified. And no one or nothing can stop God and what he has planned to do. The second reason we can have confidence in God's answers is because his people are justified. Verses 4 and 5, he, he says, Look, his ego, meaning the Babylonian's ego, is inflated. He is without integrity. The righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays an arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples to himself. In verses 4 and 5, God presents two contrasting realities. He gives us a picture of the Babylonians. He characterized them as, as prideful, as arrogant, as lacking integrity, as having inflated egos and no self-control. In verse 5, he says, they're selfish. They're never satisfied. They, they thought they were invincible. They were always lusting for more. And they became intoxicated with their own pride. They craved power. They wanted to take as many people and as many nations captive as possible. And a lot, the wine, along with their egos, gave them the false assurance that they were invincible. In fact, God compares them to Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament term for the grave. It's synonymous with death. And what God is saying is the Babylonians continue to destroy everything that gets in their way. And just as death and the grave can never be satisfied, neither can the Babylonians. Why can't they be satisfied? Because they had one goal, they had one desire. That was to gain the whole world. But Jesus gave us a warning about that in Matthew 16, 26. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but yet lose his own soul? How many people today, instead of living by faith, are never satisfied? How many people today are wanting more? And you know what? They may get what they want, but in the process, they will lose their soul. 
Because what they gain in this world will be temporal, but what they lose will be eternal. And in the midst of this terrifying description of Babylon, we find one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. The second part of verse 4, he says, The righteous one will live by his faith. This is a total contrast to the Babylonians. And this is a key verse in the book of Habakkuk. In fact, this is God's answer to the questions that Habakkuk asked in chapter 1. And this is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Some have called this verse the great text of the Bible. Because to understand this verse is to understand the gospel. It's to understand the Christian life. This verse is so important it was quoted three times in the New Testament. This verse was also the rally cry for Martin Luther as this verse changed his life and frankly changed the course of church history as he began the Protestant Reformation on October 31st, 1517. In the original Hebrew, this phrase, the justified will live by his faith, only has three words. And the order is actually the justified man by his faith will live. And each reference in the New Testament correlates to one of these three words. Romans 1, 16 to 17 speaks to the justified man. Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, Habakkuk says a person can be righteous and justified before God. But how is that possible? It can't be attained. It can't be earned. No one is capable of being perfect. The only way that one can be justified and righteous before God is through God's gift of Jesus Christ. You see, the justified man is the one who does not try to please God by his own efforts. The one who has turned to Jesus for the righteousness that God freely gives. And to be a Christian is to receive what God did for you in Christ and quit trying to earn a relationship with God. Quit trying to earn forgiveness. Quit trying to earn eternal life because no matter how hard you try to earn it, you never will. You cannot justify yourself before God. The only person who can justify you before God is Jesus Christ himself. And the foundation of the Christian life is not what we can do for God. But it's what God has done for us. You see, the righteous are those who trust God's righteousness, not their own. In Habakkuk 2.4, genuinely righteous faith perseveres in trusting the vision from God that Habakkuk was commanded to write down. You see, genuine faith trusts the word of God. If you have genuine faith, if your faith is real, you will trust Every part of the Word of God from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. And this is how the righteous will live by faith. And it's in direct contrast to how the Babylonians lived who only trusted themselves. The second verse in the New Testament that speaks to the righteous will live by faith is Hebrews 10-37-38. The author of Hebrews wrote, For yet in a very little while the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. How do we receive God's righteousness? By faith. And faith is not just believing in God. Faith also includes acting upon that belief. 
It's not just putting our faith in Jesus, but it's following Jesus. It's being committed to Jesus. It's trusting Jesus. It's relying upon Jesus. And we need to understand that we can't be righteous before God if we do not put our faith in God. Abram was told by God in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abram believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. We can't live a life of righteousness. We can't live a life of faith if we don't trust God and his word. And the commitment we make to God, it's for a lifetime. It's not for time to time. It's continuous. We are to live by faith until Jesus returns, regardless of what happens in our life and what happens around us. It's a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week, 52 weeks a year commitment. And our faith should last as long as we last. And some translations use the word, the Hebrew word enuma, which is the word for faith. Some translators translate this word faithfulness. And what we need to understand is that our faith and our faithfulness can't be separated. You cannot separate your faith from the fruit of your faithfulness. You can't say you have faith in God if you're not faithful to God. The way we show we have faith in God is by being faithful to Him. And one who truly puts their faith in God will remain faithful to God as long as they live. And like Habakkuk, the writer of Hebrews is addressing the issue of being patient, the issue of waiting on God in times of suffering, the writer of Hebrews was trying to encourage Christians and reassure them that God will intervene as promised at the appropriate time. You know, it's easy today to get discouraged in our world. It seems like evil. It seems like ungodliness is winning. It seems like that, that Christians today are being attacked constantly for their faith. And any time a believer steps out and makes a, a statement of faith, it seems like they get attacked for it. I don't know if you saw this week, I just saw this article. A Jim Harbaugh, I am not a University of Michigan fan. I am not a Jim Harbaugh fan. But now I am. Because this is what he said. He made a strong pro-life statement. If you don't know who he is, he's the head coach of the University of Michigan, was the head coach of the 49ers for many years. He said this. He said, let the unborn be born. He said, I love life. I believe in having a loving and caring respect for life and death. My faith and my science are what drives these beliefs in me. And then he said, quoting from Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I know you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. He said that at a press conference. You know what happened when it was posted? He got raked over the coals. by the liberal media. But you know what? He's not backing down. He's standing true to his statement. He said, this is what I believe and I don't care what you think about what I believe. That's someone who's taking a stand for their faith. I think of Joseph Kennedy, the high school football coach from Bremerton, Washington, who was fired, I think, in 2015 or 16 for praying at midfield after games by himself. And then eventually other players started to join him in that prayer time. And they fired him. He finally got his case before the Supreme Court and they ruled in his favor. 
I read there was a Christian lady in the United Kingdom arrested for praying outside an abortion clinic. All she was doing was praying. She wasn't causing havoc. She wasn't pestering anyone. She was just praying. And she was arrested, but thankfully she was exonerated. I read where a Southwest Airline, Airline stewardess, she was fired for posting her pro-life views online. She simply stated her beliefs about life and was fired. She sued and she won her lawsuit and won $5.1 million. This is just a few of many examples of believers who not only said they had faith, but showed it. I want to encourage you, if you say you have faith, to show you have faith. You see, saying they had faith and not living out their faith was the problem with the nation of Judah. They say, oh yes, we believe in God. Yes, we trust God. But then their actions showed that was not true. And this is the problem with many professing Christians today. I think I read where 60 to 70% of Americans say they are Christians. I say that's a fallacy because most people who say that who have no, have no understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You see, it's easy to say you have faith in God. But it's much harder to show you have faith in God. And the one who is righteous before God is the one who puts their faith in God, which is demonstrated by living for God. In Galatians, in Galatians, Paul stresses this principle of living for God. Paul had, had found out that the Galatians that he spent so much time with and planted a church there, that they had ceased to live by the gospel that he had presented to them. And they began adding works to their faith. And when Paul heard this, he was furious. And so he fired off a letter. Of course, under the direction of God and the Holy Spirit. But he wanted to make it clear there is only one gospel. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is not to be added to or taken away from. It is to be lived by. And Paul used Habakkuk 2.4 to challenge living by the law and adding the law to salvation. In Galatians 3.7, he says, All who rely on the words of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The only way to live is by faith. The only way to live is by trusting Jesus. Not only in our initial moment of belief, but at all times. And if Judah would have done that, they would have been fine. You know, living by faith is like a wedding. The wedding is just the beginning of a marriage. The wedding is where a husband and wife make a commitment for a lifetime to each other. And the validation of the commitment is not what takes place in the wedding ceremonies, it's what takes place after the wedding ends. It's the same in our relationship with Jesus. The moment we give our life to Christ is the moment we make a commitment to live for Christ. And the validity of that commitment is what happens after we give our life to Jesus. You see, the world may crumble. All that we have and know may vanish. And we may face all kinds of adversity, and all we have is our faith in Jesus. And you know what? That is all we need. Because regardless of what happens in our lives, we are to live by faith. We are to have confidence in the one who saves us, Jesus Christ. 
We're to have confidence that He is the one who gives us abundant life. And He is the one who gives us eternal life. The third thing I want to share is we can have confidence in God because His pronouncements are specified. He gives five woes of judgment upon the nation of Babylon in verses 6 through 20. And there is no ambiguity as God describes what is going to happen to Babylon. He makes it very clear. He says, yes, Babylon devoured Judah because of their sins. But guess what? I'm going to judge Babylon at the appointed time for theirs. And he gives us the first woe in verses 6 through 8. He says this, won't all these take up a taunt against them? The mockery and riddles about him, they will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his, how much longer, and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise, and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoiled for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you. Because of human bloodshed and violence against lands and cities, and all who live in him. The first oracle, the first woe is one of greed. God warns Babylon they will be plundered the way they have plundered others. They will be taunted and they will be mocked. They will become a joke to the nations that they once terrorized. And one day the nations they conquered will take back what was theirs. You see what Babylon did to others will now be done to them. The hunter will become the hunted. They'll get a taste of their own medicine. They're about to reap what they, be, what they sow. And God does not forget the evil that men do. God was not going to forget all that Babylon had done. And that's the same today. You see, nations and individuals will not get away with wrongdoing. God will exact the appropriate punishment at the appointed time. Not just for Babylon, but for any nation or person who thinks they do not need God, including America. You see, greed is a characteristic of one who doesn't trust God. A greedy person is a godless person, and Babylon was godless. Because if we trust God, we won't desire more. We won't want more and more worldly possessions. We know that God will provide what we need. But if we don't trust God, we'll do whatever it takes to get what we want or think we may need. And what we acquire is never enough. We keep wanting more. But the only thing we should want more of is Jesus. You see, money doesn't satisfy us. Pleasure won't satisfy us. All these things won't last. They have no eternal value. Only a relationship with Christ will last. The second woe is the woe of injustice. You see, the Babylonians were guilty of exploiting others. They did whatever it took to get what they wanted, and they did not care who they hurt. They didn't care who they ran over or who stood in their way. And they used their wealth acquired by unfair means to build their security. They employed fraud and force to enrich themselves. But God says one day all their security will be unsecured when what they have done to others will be done to them. And God even says that the stones and the wood and the rafters and the stolen wealth will testify against them. Proverbs 1, 18 and 19 says, These men lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. You see, God hears the cries for justice. 
And he will defend justice by punishing injustice. The third woe is verses 12 through 14. He says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. The third woe is the woe of violence or devastation. And I want you to notice the natural progression from greed to injustice to violence. They resorted to get, using violence to get what they wanted. And bloodshed and injustice were the foundation of the Babylonian Empire. In any country, in any civilization that is built on the foundation of violence and injustice will fall, will sow seeds of destruction. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. You see, all the effort, all the energy that is used to build a corrupt nation, a nation that's built on violence and greed and corruption and deception and fear will be in vain on the day of divine judgment. Why? Because they built their empire with the wrong means and impure motives, and they will not last. You see, the only foundation that will last is Jesus Christ. You know, and I hate to say it, but I think America is in for a rude awakening. Our nation wasn't built on these ungodly values. Our nation was built on Judeo-Christian principles, but unfortunately, this is no longer the case. Our nation is becoming more and more godless every day. And what defines our nation, what defines our communities, what defines our world? It's the same terms God used to define the nation of Babylon. Violence, greed, corruption, deception, fear, and the list goes on and on. And when you read the news or watch the news, all you see is, is violence. Violence is in the news every day. Just this past weekend, just a couple of items. A husband was stabbed violently by a stranger on the streets of New York while taking a walk with his wife. Just a random man came up and stabbed him multiple times and killed him for no reason at all. In Iowa, there's a family of three that was senselessly killed while camping. And I could go on and on about the stories in the news about the violence that is in our nation. If there ever was a time that we needed God, it is now. And we need to seek God. And we need to do things His way and not our way. And if we do not turn back to God as a nation, God will judge us like He did His own people and like He is going to judge the Babylonians. The fourth woe is the woe of drunkenness or seduction in verses 15 and 17. It says, Woe to him who gives his neighbor's drink pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. Utter disgrace will cover your glory. Your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. 
Babylon sought to intoxicate and to ravish and strip away everything of value from the nations they conquered. They would induce nations to get drunk to make them weak and vulnerable to attack. And they would get them so drunk that they could look at their nakedness. In Scripture, drunkenness is closely tied to sexual immorality. And what God is telling the Babylonians is one day the tables are going to turn. He says, I'm going to turn your glory to shame. You're going to become drunk and expose the way that you have done it to others. You are going to get what you deserve. And that's exactly what happened. I don't have time, but in Daniel chapter 5, the King Belshazzar's feast, the Persian army was outside the Babylonian gates. Belshazzar held a drunken, sexually immoral event. He began to blaspheme God. That night he was killed, the city fell bringing an end to the Babylonian Empire. You see, because of the violence Babylon poured out on others, the cup that Babylon was going to drink of was not one of wine. It was going to be one of God's wrath that was going to be poured out on them. Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen. this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Revelation 16, 19, the great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. You see, Babylon was going to be held responsible by God for all they had done, making it very clear that there are not two systems of morals. There are not two systems of ethics or two systems of truth. There is only one, and that is is God's truth. And the Bacchus can have confidence that even though God would use the Babylonians as a tool of discipline for the purpose of purifying his people and purging them of evil, he would destroy them like he was, he would not destroy them like he was going to do to Babylon. And we also can have confidence that yes, God requires justice. God requires righteousness. God requires holiness of all nations and all people. But those who who fail to live up to his standard, Jesus Christ, will one day face his judgment. And you may say, well, how can I live up to the standard of Jesus Christ? There's only one way to be made righteous before God. And that is by believing in Jesus and what he did on the cross for you. Because the moment you give your life to Christ, you are justified by God. Scripture says you are blameless before God. And Romans 8, 1 says, There is no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. And if we are in Christ Jesus, we simply need to live for God and let Him take care of the rest. The fifth woe is in verses 18 through 20. It's the the woe or the judgment on idolatry. It says, What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It's only a cast image, a teacher of lies, the one who crafts its shape, trusts in it, and it makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in his presence. Babylon was the center of idolatry. Marduk was the chief god, and they had others. In fact, Archaeologists archaeologists uncovered 50 pagan temples in the city ruins of Babylon. 
And Habakkuk made fun of the foolishness of the idols. And remember, idols are these man-made creations. They're wood that's overladen with gold and silver. And Habakkuk calls them a teacher of lies. Why? Because these idols will disappoint. These idols will deceive. He says in verse 19, he says, Tell them to wake up. Tell them to come alive. Habakkuk knew they could not speak. Habakkuk knew they had no life. Habakkuk knew they could not give guidance, that they were worthless. And he knew that the Babylonians would one day be as worthless as the idols they worshipped. And as ironically, the idol worshiper can't even realize his idol is worthless. His idol is useless. And what use does an idol have after it's been made? Absolutely nothing. Babylon's blinded by its own idolatry and one day would endure the divine consequences of trusting in false gods. And one of the clearest explanations of idolatry in Scripture is in Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. Turn to Isaiah 44 real quick. Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. It's a great passage on idolatry by the prophet Isaiah. I don't have time to read all of this. It's very lengthy. I would recommend maybe later you look at it, but just look at the first few verses. All who make idols are nothing. And what they treasure does not profit. Their witnesses do not see or know anything. They will be put to shame. Who makes a god or cast a metal image for no profit? Look, all its worshipers will be put to shame. The craftsmen are humans. They will assemble in sand. They will be startled and put to shame. Verse 15, it serves as fuel for man. He takes some of it and warms himself. In other words, the idol is turned into fuel for fire. That's how good it is. He even makes it into a god and worship him. He makes it an idol and bow down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. He roasts meat on the other half. He warns himself and says, Ah, oh, I'm warm, I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it, worships him. He prays to it. He says, Save me, for you are my God. Such people do not comprehend and cannot understand. He has shut their eyes. They cannot see in their minds, so they cannot understand. Verse 20, he feeds on ashes, he deceived mine has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, isn't there a lie in my right hand? Isaiah makes it very clear that idols are worthless. Idols are useless. But unfortunately, idolatry is alive and well today. People today worship many things besides God. And whatever takes the place of God in your life, whatever you worship is the God of your life, whether it's money or success or jobs or sports or hobbies or video games or, or family, whatever it is that you worship, whatever it is you have a passion for is your God. And what you worship becomes your God and what, your worship, and what you worship you become. If you want to be like God, you need to worship God. And there is only one God that's worthy of our worship and praise. And it's the true and living God. The next thing, we can have confidence and answer God gives because his presence will be magnified. Go back to verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. This is another incredible verse in the book of Habakkuk. And it's not the easiest verse to understand, especially in the context of verses 12 and 13. But perhaps the presence, the glory of God will be seen in the judgment he will bring on the Babylonians by King Cyrus and Persia. 
And this is true. Because God's glory will be evident when he removes Babylon for power. But I think there's a greater meaning as well. There's a commentator who said, Only when the problem of the wicked is resolved will the glory of the Lord fill the earth. Only when the righteous judgment rewards the wicked according to their deservings will the true knowledge of God's holiness shine forth in all its splendor. You see, God's glory will not cover the earth as long as the earth is filled with wickedness and sin and rebellion. But we can have confidence that a day is coming when the wicked will no longer reign, but God and his righteousness will reign. And Habakkuk didn't say the earth may be or could be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, but he said it will be. It is not in question. One day this earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. It is a done deal as the waters cover the sea. Now, how do all the waters cover the sea? You can't separate the waters that cover the sea from the sea itself. In the same way, there's going to be a day when the presence of God will permeate every dimension of existence. One day, the King of Kings will come, and a new day will dawn as the light of the true God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. You see, the glory and the beauty and the excellence of God will saturate all creation and evil and wickedness will exist no more. You know what verse 14 says? God wins. God wins. And I'll add this, God wins every time. The last point I want to make, not only can we have confidence in God because His presence will be magnified, we can have confidence in God because his preeminence will be glorified. Look at verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let everyone on earth be silent in his presence. In this verse, Habakkuk contrasts the foolishness of idols with the supremacy and the superiority and the excellence and the sovereignty of the true God, Yahweh. He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. This is a call to worship. And unlike idols that he talked about in the previous two verses, he's saying God is not dumb, God is not deaf, God is not dead, God is not powerless, God is alive. And he is enthroned in his temple, reigning on the universe that he created. And when things and people seem out of control, we can take confidence that God is in control. When we were in our hotel near Atlanta on Friday morning getting breakfast, there was, the news was on. Of course, it was a story about violence. There's a young man who a couple of weeks ago, who was 29 years old, was putting air in his tires at a gas station. Three young men tried to hack, carjack his car, and they killed him, shot him on the spot. 29-year-old man, beloved football coach in the area of Atlanta, had a young daughter at home. Life was snuffed out by evil. Not at night, at 12.30 p.m. in the light of day. A lady was watching the story and she said this. She said, what is wrong with people? This world is crazy. You know what? She's right. We live in a crazy world. But even though seems to be, things seem to be crazy and spinning out of control, we can have confidence that God is still in control and on his throne. God is sovereign. Think about the transformation that occurred in Habakkuk 
We began in chapter 1 where his conversation with God was one about frustration and complaining about what was happening in Judah and God not doing anything and being silent. Now Habakkuk is the one who is silent and reverential all before God in his holy temple. You see, when we find ourselves in the presence of the Lord in worship, it can profoundly change our perspective and what is happening in our lives and our world. And when we are confused by the ungodliness and the sinfulness that is all around us, we need to go to the house of God. We need to enter the presence of God and worship Him and be silent before Him to gain strength and wisdom and insight. And being in the presence of God may not change our circumstances. This was the case with Habakkuk and Judah. But it will change us. It will change our perspective. It will change our complaining to confession. It will change our whining to worship. Just like what happened in the life of Habakkuk. And everyone on earth should be silent before God. Everyone on earth should would come before God with a reverential all because of who he is and what he's done. And one day, everyone will come before God in that way. Because there will be a day, as Philippians 2.11 says, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And one day, everyone will give God the praise and worship that he deserves. You see, Habakkuk waited on God, and God answered him. God gave him a vision of what was to come. God told him to write it down, and he did. He told him to make it plain so anyone who reads it may live by it, and he did. And God made it clear to Habakkuk that he was simply raising up the Babylonians to punish his own people, not to destroy them, but that in no way meant that he was not condoning the evil and the sin of the Babylonians. In fact, God made it clear that he would judge them for their sin at the appropriate time because one day they would endure the wrath of God for what they had done and as a result of using the Babylonians God's people would be purified of their sin and restored and the one who is truly righteous will live by faith in him it is clear from Habakkuk and what God told him that we each have a choice we can choose to put our confidence in ourselves in others, in our abilities, or we can choose to put our confidence and our faith in God. We can live for ourselves, or we can live by faith in God. Yes, our world is a mess. Yes, our world is in turmoil. But a day of reckoning is coming. And those who do evil will pay for what they've done. And just like God judged the wickedness of the Babylonians, he will one day judge those who practice evil in this world. No one will get away with evil. No one will get away with sinning and being disobedient to God. And from Habakkuk 2, when we look at why we can have confidence in God, there's no reason to look anywhere but to God because no one is like our God. There's a song by Matt Mayer called Alive and Breathing, and it says, In the working, in the waiting, in the breaking. Praise the Lord. You know what these lyrics are saying? That whatever is happening in our lives, whatever is happening in our world, whether it's a period of waiting, 
whether it's a period of brokenness, we can have confidence in God and we can praise God because he is still on his throne. And as we close this morning, I want to challenge you to determine to trust God, to have confidence in God, even when you don't understand why. I want to challenge you to wait on God for answers you have to your questions. I want to challenge you to seek God's face in the midst of your doubts and the fears you may have. I want to challenge you and encourage you to always live by faith by putting your confidence in God. And we have every reason to have confidence in God and to trust Him. That we don't have one good reason not to. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning and just thank you for your word and thank you for your truth. And Father, as you revealed to Habakkuk, Father, I pray that we would understand that we can have confidence in you. God, we can have confidence in who you are. We can have confidence in your plans. We can have confidence, God, that you are sovereign and that you are still on your throne. And Father, I pray that we would come before you with a reverential awe. I pray, God, that we would be in awe of you because of who you are and what you've done. And yes, God, we live in a world that's full of wickedness and evil. But Father, I pray that we who know you would live by faith, trusting you, knowing that your plans are solidified, knowing that your plans are perfect, that your timing is perfect. And yes, God, one day you will judge sin and punish sin. And it may not be in our time life. It might not be in our time frame. But God will be accorded to your appointed and appropriate time. And Father, may we have confidence in you. And Father, I pray if there's someone this morning that does not know you, I pray today would be their day of salvation. Father, I pray today they would come to the point where they say, I want to put my life, I want to give my life to Jesus and put my faith in him. Father, for those of us that made that commitment, Father, may we have confidence in you regardless of what is happening around us, regardless of what we're going through in our lives. May our trust in you never be shaken. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time of worship this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen.